Well, good evening, good evening. Hey, let me just two ladies, you, you play an important part in encouraging your husband to come to the men's retreat, right? So just at dinner or maybe this week sometime, you just ask the question, hey, have you thought about going? And, 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 and don't be deterred by the first response if it's, if it's, if it's a no. Uh, ask some questions. Sometimes as, as, as guys, or I'll speak for myself, we, 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 we tend to not have a lot of words to get out. Uh, we, we don't like to talk about how we're feeling, right? That, that's a, a huge part of us. And, and so what, what tends to work for guys is not a really hard push on the front end, but just lots of little gentle... <laughs> that keep going until you break through, right? Yeah, yeah, right? Don't, not the gush of water, but just... Just a little bit. Just keep asking questions. Keep coming back to it. Your husband, he might need some encouragement. It can be an intimidating thing, especially if, if you're new here. It can be an intimidating thing to show up uh, with a bunch of guys that they don't know. But I, I guarantee you this, on the back end, he's going to come out of that weekend with some of his closest friends. And so, uh, so ladies, you play an important part. Hey, I want to do some giveaways tonight. Can I do that uh, before we get started? Uh, one is to Cortez. He had a birthday this week. Come on. Cortez leads up the Catalyst Effect, which does some amazing things here. You're going to be here next week about an event that, that we want to help them promote. And, uh, and so there's going to be some details about that. Is Penny in here? Is Penny's back here. Penny, it's today. Is your birthday today, Penny? It is today. Happy birthday. Yeah. Serving on her birthday. And then this, if you're not on Facebook, then you're not going to know why this is funny, but this is for Garland Moore. This is your very own Mrs. Butterworth syrup. Come on. There you go. There was this the terribly tragic post about how he had made waffles, and then he went into the pantry, and his kids had drank all of his stash. And you might say, don't you mean eat? And I'm like, no, if you've ever seen kids have pancakes, they drink the syrup, Right. On the plate, I was like, no man should be without his missus. And that's my favorite one too, sir, so come on. So I saw that post, I was like, he's getting his own syrup on Saturday night for church. Praise the name. It's the oil that runs down Aaron's beard. Right there. That's right there. So good. Well, we're excited, obviously, as a church for this season that God has us. Uh, somebody came up during the greet time and said, Fred, you used the word donate. Is, did, did, is that what you meant to say? I said, yes. And, and, and they said, you know, you're talking about a $3 million asset. So when you say donate, do you mean that, that, that we're not buying it at a discount, that you're, they're actually going to donate? And, and I said, yes, that's, that's what we're talking about. And uh, so this is a, a, just, a, again, a huge moment of, of generosity that, that they are considering. And so we just we thank them for their heart, for their kingdom-mindedness, right? For their kingdom-mindedness. Well, this is our uh, final week in our Open Heaven series that we have been in for many weeks now. I've, I've loved this series. This has been such a good series for me personally. I hope it's been an impactful series for you. Uh, and so then next weekend, Sharon Thomas is going to be preaching. If you're new to the church and you've not, come on, you can clap for that. Incredible teacher of God's word. So she's going to be preaching uh, on the uh, 29th next week. And then the following weekend, that first weekend in October, uh, it'll be the culmination of the men's getaway. But also we're going to be launching into a new series. I don't, we're just going to see how long it lasts. But I'm, I'm calling it In the Crowd. Uh, and then every week, I'm, just, I'm going to share a little bit about it now. Because I just want you to be preparing your hearts, even though we're a couple of weeks away. It's going to be a series where you need to come 
prepared to respond throughout the sermon, meaning that there are going to be moments throughout the sermon every week where we're going to stop and you're going to be able to respond, whether it's standing, whether it's coming to the altar, where we're going to minister together in prayer uh, and really uh, expect that God's going to do some neat things in our lives, some, uh, some supernatural things. Can we use that word? Uh, in our lives. And so uh, in the crowd. So that series, you come every week ready uh, to engage and participate and, and respond so let me just do a little bit of a recap uh, from last week. I'm not going to reteach last week. You can get that on the podcast. Our notes are also always available online. But we've got a verse that I want to show you. It's a 1 Corinthians 16.22 that's going to pop up any minute now from the projection team that's in the sound booth. There you go. It says, this is, it says, the greeting is in my own hand, and then he said, right, it says Paul, and, and, and so if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Now, I'm not going to, again, we talked about what that word means, anathema last week, doomed for destruction, and, and then he just kind of drops in. If you've ever read this text, it's almost awkward. It's just, he just drops this word in there, maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now that word Maranatha, as we explained last week, depending on where how you break it up, it's really not one word, it's two words in the original Greek. And if you spell that word M-A-R-A-N-A hyphen T-H-A, it means our Lord comes, which means, right, that as we believe that Jesus is coming back. But if you shift where that hyphen appears and you spell the word M-A-R-A-N hyphen A-T-H-A, it means our Lord has come. And it's been a debate, right, over many, many centuries of, of, of how we should understand that word. And I'm of the camp that's, that says that we're not supposed to pick, that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this word and to put it in there in such a way that it means both, that Jesus has come, and that he's coming again. And because of our belief in this, which is really the essence of the gospel, that's why he puts it in here. Because Paul is saying, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And then the reason why he drops Maranatha in here is because he's saying that no one has to be. That no one has to be doomed for destruction because Jesus has come and died for the sins of the world. And he's going to come again. That we have the hope of eternity forever. An open heaven is when the Holy Spirit empowers activity for the church to bring a Maranatha message. As a, as a church here in the 757, we want to be known as a congregation that has a Maranatha message, that we teach that Jesus has come, that he's died for the sins of the world, and that he's coming again. And oftentimes, as we're, we looked at last week, and then we're going to drill down on one of them specifically tonight, that there is supernatural activity, that God empowers certain activity in the church so that when that message comes forth, it causes people to take notice. And open heaven is also when the Holy Spirit enables revelation, right? All throughout this series, we've been creating this massive definition for an open heaven, and each week we've been adding to it as we've been studying this idea all throughout Scripture. And so these are the final two components of this definition in this series. Then an open heaven is when the Holy Spirit enables revelation for the people to have a Maranatha moment. So we want to bring a Maranatha message, but we want people to be able to respond to that message. We want there to be a revelation. We want there to be an epiphany that Jesus is their Savior and that his promise of coming again is for them. 
Last week, we walked through all of these different examples of supernatural activity that you find in Scripture, that there's falling down, preaching and praise, visions, teleportation. You might be saying, did you mean to put that up there, right? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, right, where people are in one place, and then all of a sudden, they're in somewhere else. There's prophetic power. There's special knowledge. But then also, you find that here in the New Testament, there's spiritual language. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to teach on that tonight, because there's a lot of confusion, I believe, and a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to spiritual language. But it's important because this is specifically the supernatural activity that God chose in Acts chapter 2 to empower that Maranatha message for there to be a Maranatha moment for those who were there. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13, Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. We read it last week, but I want to read it again this week in its entirety. It says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. That's an important note there. At at that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. You you see here, there's there's supernatural activity that's going to accompany this Maranatha message that draws a crowd. So there can be a Maranatha moment for people. It says they were completely amazed. They said, how can this be? Reading in verse 7, they exclaimed, these people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. This is because people from Galilee were not known to be people who were educated. And so not only are they surprised that they're hearing their language, it's that they're, he- that they're surprised they're hearing their language from these people. Jerusalem was a, like a New York City of its day. It was a place of incredible ethnic diversity. So it wasn't uncommon for people to hear their language as they were in that city, but it would have been uncommon for them to hear their language from Galileans. It says, here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Listen to what it said, and we All hear these people speaking in our languages about the wonderful things that God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they ask? But others in the crowd ridiculed, saying they're just drunk. That's all. We talked about that last week. Verse 14, then Peter, come on, step forward. I'm going to go past 13. Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you. Fellow Jews Jews and residents of Jerusalem, and make no mistake about this, these people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. Let's hope that's true for everyone here today as well. It says, no, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel, and then you have the very first sermon of the very first church in the world. 
There is supernatural activity that, that accompanied a Maranatha message so that there could be a, a, a revelation, right? So people could come to the realization and revelation that Jesus has come and that he's coming again and they can step into a Maranatha moment. And, and it says, if you were to continue to read in this text, that over 3,000 people made vows of devotion to Christ that day. And the supernatural activity that God chose to accompany this great message was spiritual language. He could have picked any of these other examples, but this is the one that comes. So I want to talk a little bit tonight about what spiritual language is and this idea that maybe if you've been around church for any amount of time, you've heard this phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because there in Acts chapter 2, right, if we're looking in verse 4, it says they, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is interesting. We're going to talk about this. They were filled with the Spirit, but they already had the Holy Spirit, and we're going to read a verse that explains that to us. So they had the Holy Spirit, but yet they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What's, what does that mean? And then it says, because they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. I think the first question that oftentimes comes when people begin to explore this question of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in spiritual language is, is this experience separate and different from my salvation? Meaning that the moment you make a vow of devotion to Christ, is there something else that's waiting for you. John 20, 22 tells us this. Now we're backing up in time, so, so stay with me. Like, this is like a confusing movie that has a lot of flashbacks. So, so, so here we are in Acts chapter 2. It's the very first message of the very first church. The, the, the early disciples are, are baptized in the Holy Spirit, spiritual language. So let's back up. It, let's back up about 50 days and to Jesus' death and resurrection. On the very first day of his resurrection in John chapter 20, it says that Jesus right, in his, in his spiritual form, passed through a wall, didn't come through the door, and appeared to the disciples except for Thomas and the others that were gathered there. You can read that account in John 20. But in verse 22, it tells us something unique. It says that as Jesus was standing there, verse 22, it says, then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is important to us because if he had just said receive the Holy Spirit, then I think that we could interpret this to say that he's talking about something that's going to happen. But it says he breathes on them. Now these, these people are, are steeped in the knowledge of Scripture. There's no New Testament then, just the Old Testament. But all of these people have spent all of their lives learning about the story of God from Genesis to Malachi. And the fact that Jesus breathes on them to a Jewish person in the first century would have had incredible significance because that's what God did for Adam and Eve. In the story of creation, the Bible says that God breathes on them. In the Hebrew, it's the Ruach HaKodesh, the breath of God. And so for Jewish people to be standing in front of the resurrected Messiah and for him to breathe on them, I think it's a fair interpretation to say something happened in that moment. It wasn't a promise of something that was to come. It was an experience that they had that day. And it says that, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. The idea is that spiritually, unlike Adam and Eve, where the breath of God brought them to physical life, right? This is about John chapter 3, about a spiritual rebirth, about being born again, that Jesus breathes on them, and the Holy Spirit enters into them, and they're filled with his Spirit. 
So then we get to Acts chapter 2. What's that about? How can you be filled with the Spirit and then experience a second filling of the Spirit? This is an important question for us to understand this moment. It's also important to realize that Jesus gives the Great Commission in between John 20 and Acts chapter 2, but yet he told them to wait until something else was going to happen for them. If, if, if they didn't need this other experience, why wouldn't they have been sent out right away? Because they already had the Holy Spirit from their salvation. There's more that you and I need for the empowerment, for the Maranatha message to be effective and for the Maranatha moment to come for people. We don't get more of God when we experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God gets more of us. Randy Hurst, who's a great theologian in the Assemblies of God, is, that's one of his quotes. He's got a great teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We don't get more of God. He gets more of us. I like to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a spiritual chiropractic experience. Anybody go to, I go to a chiropractor once a month. I went on Friday, all right? I always feel so good. It's, it's about getting your physical body rightly aligned. Can I just tell you, the, the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about getting the, the part of you that you can't see in proper alignment. It's about your will and, and, and the Spirit of God having the dominant influence over your will. When you make a, a vow of devotion to Christ and you're filled with the Spirit of God, you still have choices that you have to make. You, you, you still have a will that you have to exercise about right and wrong, about things that you should do and things that you shouldn't do. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is about the Spirit of God inside of us being positioned and postured in a way so that it is the loudest, most dominant influence over our will. It's different from salvation. For some people, it happens at the same time, but just because it happens at the same time doesn't mean that it's not two separate encounters. I think the reason why God put 50 days in between the disciples' salvation and their baptism in the Holy Spirit is because he wanted to make it clear for us that these are two separate encounters. I think he separated them by time in history because he wanted to create clarity in our understanding that these are two unique encounters. Different from salvation, I would say yes. Number two, you might be here tonight and you're asking the question for, why haven't I heard this before? Maybe you've been in church for a long time. Maybe you've heard teaching that's the exact opposite of this. Let me read you this verse out of Hebrews chapter 6. It says, therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again. Now this is a list that the writer of Hebrews gives. Now watch what it said. Let us leave the elementary teachings, which means that the list that he's getting ready to give, it's just the basics. It's the elementary school of Christianity, if you can think of it that way. Let us not lay again the foundation of, of repentance from acts that lead to death, right? That's the anathema. And of faith in God. Instructions about baptisms. It's plural. And it's plural for a reason. Because as you study through the New Testament, what you find is that there are four examples of baptisms in Scripture. I'm going to give you that list. And he says, the writer of Hebrews, or she, right? Whoever the author is, we don't know for certain who the author is. We know that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. We just don't know who the instrument is because it's, it's not identified. But they're saying this idea of multiple baptisms is just a part of the basics of Christianity. 
laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. This is the list of the writer of Hebrews that's saying, hey, this is just, this is just 101 Christianity. As we look at that list, there should be something inside of me that says, if I'm a devoted follower of Christ, I should have a, a grasp on this list so that I can go on to deeper things. And right here it says instructions about baptisms. And let me give you this verse. This is Acts 2.38. It says, Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's Luke talking about there? He's talking about your salvation. It's not about John 20. It's not about when you make a vow of devotion to Christ. It's John chapter 3. It's being born again. And that should be accompanied by water baptism right there. I love that that pool is full because there's another church in our city that's going to be using this building on Sunday afternoon. They're going to be baptizing people right in that tank. It's good stuff. Water baptism. It's one of the ways that the Bible talks about baptism. In the Greek, it's the word baptizo, which means to be made fully wet. To be completely immersed. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 speaks about a baptism. It says, some of us are Jews and some are Gentiles, some are slaves and some are free, but we have all, listen to what it says, been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Here, the word baptism is talked about being a part of a local community of believers, and I love that the word baptizo was used because it means that you should be fully immersed in the church that you call home. Matthew 3, 11 and 12 gives us the final two. This is Jesus. He says, I've baptized with water for, this is John the Baptist talking about the ministry of Jesus. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals, right? Sandals, they're in the Bible. <laughs> David might be done with his shorts, but I'm not done with my Birkenstocks yet, just saying. He will baptize, listen to what it says, you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I love Larry Kreider's break, breaking down of this text because most people push those things together and you shouldn't because he's talking about two different things. Baptize you with the Holy Spirit is this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we see in Acts chapter 2. And with fire is the fourth kind of baptism, which is why the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to, to further expound. Verse 12 is is a further ex, ex, expounding on this idea of being baptized with fire. Listen to what it says. He's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork, and then he will clean up the threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. This idea of a baptism of fire, is the, it's the seasons that God leads us into that are hardships. Just because we're devoted followers of Christ doesn't mean that we're on easy street all the way to heaven. Ecclesiastes 3 still applies to us. There's seasons that we like and then there's seasons that we don't. But those that we don't, it has a refining effect in our lives. There's water baptism. There's being baptized into the church as a, as a metaphor. There's the Holy Spirit baptism. And then there's this idea of the experience of baptism of fire through suffering, through difficult times. Let me share this thought with you. Acceptance among our secular culture over the last 2,000 years. It's not odd to follow a spiritual leader such as Jesus. It's not. In secular culture, it's not odd to believe that difficult circumstances build character. 
In secular culture, it's not odd to to join and be devoted to a spiritual community. Even friends that you have that maybe aren't interested in church, it's not odd that other people pursue it. But listen to this. It is, however, still considered odd to profess having had a supernatural spiritual encounter that leaves a person with the ability to pray and worship in a spiritual language. It's curious, isn't it? How is it that three of these find themselves in a a place of acceptance, even in secular culture? But yet this last one is considered odd and strange. And can we just say, how is it that even in Christian communities, how is it that three are celebrated and one is not? Acts 2.39, listen to what Luke writes here. Quoting Paul in his first sermon. This promise is to you, to your children... And those who are far away, guess who that is? That's us. And it's every generation that comes after us. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. It's different from your salvation encounter. Oftentimes people haven't heard teaching like this before because of the church that they've been a part of. Or maybe it's because that you've been nervous about just opening yourself up to these parts of scripture. We're going to talk about that some tonight. I love this text that we come to here. It's, it's found in, where's my verse here? Luke 24, 28 to 31. Luke 24, 30, 28 to 31. It says, by this time they were near, all right, so now we've moved back in time a little bit more, right? Watching the movie, flashback. So this is the first day of Jesus' resurrection. This is the road to Emmaus. We did a, our sermon for Easter was this, and that launched us into a whole series that we did on directional living, same text. It says, by this time they were nearing Emmaus, and, and, and the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they begged him, stay with us. Stay the night with us since it's getting late. They didn't know it was Jesus yet, right? So he went home with them, and as they sat down to eat, he took the bread, blessed it, then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. See, there's that teleportation thing again. This is an important text for us in the context of this message because there's got to be something inside of us that's willing to admit that there are parts of the Christian experience that we're still blinded to and that we need Jesus to open our eyes. And it could be that your eyes are closed to things like we're talking about tonight for lots of different reasons, but my encouragement to you is to be like the people on the road to Emmaus, these two men that walked with Christ, that there could be some things Even though you've given your life to study, even though you've been walking with God maybe for decades, can we all live the rest of our lives with a prayer and a belief that Jesus, if there are things that I still need to see that I can't see now, open my eyes to them. Different from salvation. Sometimes people, it's confusing because they've never heard teaching like this before. Number three, it could be that this conversation tonight makes you nervous because you're concerned that if you give yourself over to some of these supernatural experiences that you're going to lose control of yourself. Maybe you've been in church services before that believe things like this and you've seen other people not be in control of themselves. I've been in services like that where people have not been in control of themselves. This is what I like to tell people when they ask me this question. You will be just as much in control of yourself to the degree that you are now. So if you've got a problem with self-control, 
then chances are that's not going to change for you overnight. And chances are, if you've been in church services before where you saw people do some really strange things, more than likely it had nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. It had everything to do with the fact that they too had a self-control problem. A lot of odd things that happen in the church get attached to God when it's really attached to that person. Listen to these verses in Galatians Galatians 5, right? This is just, again, this, this list could have been put in Hebrews chapter 6 as far as just rudimentary Christianity. The fruit of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. Listen to the list. So if, if the Holy Spirit is in my life, right, then this is the fruit that should come from him. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What's the last one? Self-control. Surprise, surprise. So if you've ever heard someone say, I just couldn't control myself, it was the Holy Spirit, you got to say, well, I'm not sure that's who the Holy Spirit is. Because he's all about self-control. And I love this Paul's writing to the, this letter to the Galatians that he says there is no law against these things. What does that mean? It, it means that some things in this life the concept of excess is true. Except for maybe the snickerdoodles down there in the cafe for the life group reception, right? No, it's things just like that. It's things that we enjoy, but there's something that, 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 that there's excess. We can enjoy them too much. But when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, Paul writes here, there is no law against it, which means that as these things increase in measure, it's only ever a good thing. So if I experience salvation and the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, and then at some point I experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as I continue to walk as a disciple of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit should grow in me, which means that as I mature in my faith, I should actually be more in control than I used to be. There is no law against these things. 1 Corinthians 14, 32, and I'm going to read verse 40. Verse 32, remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit, and they can take turns. 1 Corinthians 14, 40, but be sure that everything is done properly and in order. The early church had an expectation that supernatural things would happen, but that those supernatural things would always happen in the context of decency and order, of people in control. Can I just tell you that if you're in the Spirit, you should be in control, and you should also be in step. You should be in control, and you should be in step. Let me tell you what that means. You should be in control of yourself, but also you should be in step with the moment. Part of being in step is your volume, right? Now, you might say that's a little odd to be talking about here at City Life Church because we're like, we like to be loud here. But there's also times where we like to be quiet. There's also times when we come to a place of reverence. And part of being in the Spirit means that, that you're in control enough to be in step with everybody else that's in the room. So that when we're loud, you be loud. But then when we're quiet, we say, right, be in control and be in step with us. Your posture. I remember when the church first started and we were meeting in, in Regal Cinema, there was this young man and then we had, we had to meet with him. But that, that whenever we worshiped, he sat down the whole time. And then when we all sat down for the sermon to 
start, he would stand up, right? That's not being in step with what's happening in the room. And, and his response was, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in the spirit. Well, if you're in the spirit, you're in control, but then you should also be in step with what's happening around you. Your volume, your posture, the place that you are in the service is an example of being in step. Coming down to the altar. I love that Sharon came down to the altar tonight in worship, right? That's an appropriate time. What would be not an appropriate time if you came down to the altar like during announcements? There would be a strangeness to that. It's not being in step with the flow of the room. Now, again, it could be that you've been in churches before, and it could be that, that, that you've been taught some of the opposite things of these. And so this is our interpretation of these scriptures and a reflection of what we believe, what it means to walk in the Spirit. Your volume, your posture, your place. This is important, too, is what's your impact? If the impact of your actions when you're being prompted to do something by the Holy Spirit, are you drawing people's attention to you? Or are you directing their attention to Christ? Everything that we do when we gather together in public worship should have the same result, which is pointing people to Jesus. Anytime our behavior, our activity, is, creates a distraction and causes people to see me and distract them from the ministry of the moment, then I would say that's never being in the Spirit. Being in the Spirit means that you're always in control. Being in the Spirit means that you're always in step. And you can still move in incredibly supernatural ways and still fulfill both of those expectations. Another question that often comes is, is spiritual language for everyone? It could be that you're here and you say, Fred, I, I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I, I believe in spiritual language. I, I just don't believe that it's for everyone. And so let me walk you through the three ways that Scripture talks about spiritual language. This is a key part of this teaching because if you just see spiritual language as, as one thing, it's the equivalent of saying we should apply the rules of baseball to soccer because they're both sports. You're tracking with me? People, they have an understanding of spiritual language, but oftentimes it's confusing because really what they have is an understanding of a certain part of spiritual language that Scripture speaks to. And Scripture talks about spiritual language in three distinct ways. The first one we find in 1 Corinthians 12, 29 to 30. Again, all of these notes are going to be online if you want to study this a little bit more. 1 Corinthians 12, 29 to 30. There is the person whose primary gift to the body of Christ is a prophetic ministry of declaring a message from God that must be accompanied by an interpretation. Let me read that again. There are people whose primary gift in the body of Christ is a prophetic ministry. And then oftentimes that prophetic ministry is declaring a message from God that must be accompanied by an interpretation, meaning that if the message comes by way of a spiritual language in a corporate setting and that person is delivering a message from God to other people, it must be accompanied by an interpretation or it's out of order. We believe that. The Bible also talks about another kind of spiritual language that you find in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, and 11. There are moments when people are compelled by God to be an instrument of his being manifested to the world. Now, this might not ever necessarily happen to you, meaning that it's a manifestational gift, meaning it's a, it's a manifestational moment. It, it's, it doesn't mean that you now have a prophetic ministry in the body of Christ moving forward, but that God wanted to bring supernatural activity to a Maranatha message so somebody could have a Maranatha moment, and spiritual language can be that. 
There's times where God wants to use you to intersect people's lives in dramatic ways. Not specifically about spiritual language, but one of my favorite stories about this is my sister-in-law, Tanya, years ago in Williamsburg, her and her husband, Christoph, pastor Life Church there in Williamsburg, amazing church. And, and, and when it was Christian Life Center, it's the church that started this one. And I'll never forget Tanya telling a story. She was in a, a Starbucks in, in, in Williamsburg, and she's checking out, and, and, and the Holy Spirit just whispers through her heart, I want you to go tell that musician that's playing on the stage there that, that I love him. And she's thinking, I, you know, I got things to do, right? It's what we all do. Come on. Or most of us. And then you get into this thing, well, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be odd. He's just some guy playing music over in the corner. For the Holy Spirit just will not relent. So finally, Tanya walks over and says, hey, you know, not trying to be weird here, but as I was checking out, I just, I saw you playing over here and I just felt like that God wanted you to hear him say that he loves you. So he didn't really respond, and, right? You're kind of waiting, you know, they're going to reciprocate in some way and he didn't. And so Tanya said, you know, I hope you have a great day. And she goes out the door, and as she goes out the door, she hears the, the exit door open and close behind her. She turns around, and it's this musician, and he's weeping, just crying. And he's got a letter in his hand. This is a true story. He's got a letter in his hand. And she walks back over to him, and, and he said, this letter that I'm, I'm holding, this is a true story. This letter that I'm holding in my hand is my suicide note. I wrote it this morning. I was going to play today, and I was going to take my life, but now I'm not going to. And he ended up getting a, becoming a part of that church, and they ended up helping him get counseling for his depression. Are you tracking with me? There are moments in our lives. We're just going about our day, looking for the pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> Something inside of me should say, I, I want to be a candidate. I want to live my life with an expectation that God wants to do some things. And there are moments where we don't want to step into them because we don't want to feel odd. We don't want to feel conspicuous. This is part of what we're going to talk about in this, this, this series coming up called In the Crowd. But this idea of spiritual language, sometimes this could be your inhibition. It's just this idea, Fred, I don't want the rest of the world to look at me and see me as strange. I get it. I understand. But can I just tell you, that's your humanity robbing you of the fullness of what God wants you to experience in this life. With God, there is always more. And there's got to be something inside of me like the people on the road to Emmaus that says, God, open my eyes. I'm not asking you to agree with everything that I'm saying tonight. I'm not. But what I am asking you is to have that prayer. So that God, if my eyes are closed to something that need to be open, then open them for me. Sometimes spiritual language is that manifestation moment. Now this is the third one that scripture talks about. There is the ability to express ourselves to God in times of prayer and worship unencumbered by human intellect. Let me read that again. There is the ability to express ourselves. So the first two, they might not ever happen to you. That's about your role in the body of Christ. It's about how God chooses to use you in a moment of manifestation. But this third one, I believe this is for everyone. There is the ability to express ourselves to God in times of prayer and worship unencumbered by human intellect and earthly language. I don't know about you, but sometimes language and my intellect, they're not enough. This is for us all. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, 18. 
Verses 1 through 17, Paul is teaching on the spiritual gift as a prophetic ministry in church gatherings. But then in verse 18, he's referencing spiritual language for our personal lives. And then back to verse 19, he says, but in a church meeting. And in my notes, I explain that a little bit more. 1 Corinthians 14 is Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit trying to help the church to understand, stop lumping spiritual language into one big category. We would never do that with sports, right? It falls under a category, but they're all individual in nature. Spiritual language is a category of supernatural activity, but then there are different ways that it operates in Scripture. I believe that spiritual language is for everyone. There are going to be moments in your life, in prayer and worship, where words are going to fail you. In the deepest pain and the greatest heights of joy, you can be the smartest person in this room, you can speak 10 languages, but at some point, it's not going to be enough. And for me, it makes perfect sense that God in his sovereignty, through the power of his Holy Spirit, would give us the ability to express our thoughts and feelings to him in such a deeply personal way that it's completely unencumbered by language and intellect. When we're worshiping in here on Saturday nights, I, I, I do those words some, but most of the time I'm just singing in a spiritual language. I, can I just tell you, it's a whole lot easier because I don't have to worry about conjugation. That's confusing. There's a freedom and a liberty that comes in prayer and in worship through spiritual language. Let me give you this last one. You might be saying, Fred, but at the end of the day, if I don't understand what I'm saying, how does it matter? How does it help? How can it be beneficial? I'm glad you asked that question. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation that God has given. One will speak, right, in tongues, but that's an antiquated word. We don't use that. To, that that's an ancient word for language. So I like to use the word spiritual language because it's a modernized way of communicating what the Bible is saying. It says, and another will interpret what is said, but everything is, that is done must strengthen all of you. In the Greek here, that's, that's the word, the word there is to edify, which is the, the, the root word is the same thing we get for an edifice. It means to build people up. See, the fruit of everything that's happening in the church should always result in the building up of people. And spiritual language is given in this list. There is a building up that happens in us. When we avail ourselves to this gift that God wants us to have. I tell this story probably every year or so. It's the story of our oldest son when he was born, turned 18, right, this year. It's a big year for us as a, as a, as a family, and, and, uh, but I'll never forget the day of his birth in, in July of 2000, is that as, as he was being born, there were, there, were, there were complications with him, with his birth, and so um, it was scary for Vanessa and I, and, and uh, all the, the, the NICU staff were, were in there, right, There's, the room's just crowded, and, and as soon as, as, as Derek is, is birthed, we're not able to do any of the, the traditional things, right, that you typically do. There's just a heightened sense of nervousness in this room for his health and for his safety and for Vanessa. And so the, as he's birthed, he, he, immediately they, they whisk him to the other side of the room and they, and they put him in this, like this plexiglass, right? You've seen him, like this pl- plexiglass bassinet. And there's nurses and doctors all around him working on him. 
And he is screaming, screaming. And I, Vanessa and I are, right, we're just over there. We're just, you just feel a little helpless. And I remember walking over there, and I don't recommend that you do this, pushing the doctors and the nurses out of the way, right? And getting down on my knees, and my face is right through this plexiglass, and he's looking straight up. His face is blood red from screaming. And I just start talking to him. Derek, this is your dad. We're so excited that you're here. We love you. God has such great plans for your life. And all of a sudden, he stops crying. This is a true story. Turns his head and looks right at me. Every doctor and nurse that was in that room stopped what they were doing in that moment because Derek knew that I was his father and he knew that he was my son. He didn't understand a lick of what I was saying to him. He didn't understand any word that I said. But can we just agree that there are times in our lives where God has made us to connect with people in moments that do not need language. And can I just tell you that God wants to do that with you for the rest of your life. Even though you have language and even though you have intellect, that acts of expression lead to feelings of intimacy, it's a principle in this world. And when we begin to step into the kinds of gifts that God wants us to experience, there is a deepening of a feeling of intimacy that we begin to have as our child and his father that no amount of earthly language could ever facilitate. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. If, if what I'm talking to you tonight is just brand new, or even if it's not, and, and you'd like to study and read, can I just tell you Jack Hayford, anything that Jack Hayford writes, he's one of my all-time favorites. Right? You can buy anything that he writes, it's going to be awesome. But this is the best book, and I've read a lot of books on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spiritual language. This is by far, leaps and bounds, better than any one that I've ever written. It's called The Beauty of Spiritual Language, Unveiling the Mystery of Speaking in Tongues by Jack Hayford. I'm just going to lay it down here. This, this is not for you to take. Right? I know we do some giveaways, just clarifying that. I got all kinds of notes in here. This cannot disappear. But if you want to come take a picture of it, you feel free. Let, let me read you this little excerpt from here. It says, in reality, the whole of salvation is wrapped in one large package, Jesus. So from the inception of our new life in Christ, we have the full bounty of all that is promised us. But just as my wife needed to unwrap each individual gift within the larger box, it is similarly true that each of us is called to partake to decisively open, to receive to ourselves each of the many blessings and provisions that are the gifts that God has for us. He tells the story right before this quote I'm reading to you about one Christmas. He had a present for his wife, and it was a small present, right, in a small box, but it was wrapped in lots of other boxes. So she's opening a box, then another box, then another box, right? You get the picture. Says there is a theological accuracy in the proposition that everything we receive from God is delivered to us when we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. But equally important, there is a practical necessity. The application of each facet of God's resource for our lives depends upon our unwrapping what He's provided. 
You and I need to take, receive, and open each portion within the promise. Taking it unto ourselves. Opening the possibilities inherent in each part of the full dimensions of life we've been given through Jesus Christ. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship tonight, I pray that something of this Maranatha message tonight is going to resonate with the hearts of people that are here, and they're going to have their own Maranatha moment. Father, we pray for people that are here that this is new for them, and we pray they would be like the Bereans of days of old, and they would begin to search the scriptures for the truth for themselves. And we pray, Father, as we already prayed, as we gathered at 4.30 here and just praying over this service earlier this evening, Father, that this series, this series on open heavens, even though it's ending tonight, that it would be the beginning of our expectations, that as we move forward in this life, following you in full devotion, that there is an expectation and a faith and a belief and a hope that there are open heavens waiting for us every day in our future. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. Let's worship.